Too late. From the street, Atlanta looks like any other big city. But go to the top floor of any high-rise and you'll see treetops. Miles and miles of treetops. I'm not saying you won't see any buildings or roads, but for the most part, it's canopy. Most of my family lives within the city limits, amongst some of the oldest and most beautiful of those trees, in a neighborhood called Virginia Highland. Despite its in-town location, Virginia Highland has an American small-town feel. The neighborhood sits on top of a hill east of downtown Atlanta, and during the winter you can see the city's skyline from almost anywhere in the neighborhood. In a typical sought-after neighborhood, the diversity of its residents disappears as fast as the home prices go up. But in the highlands, the diversity remains intact. It's a very popular area for all walks of life and all colors. College kids, yuppies, families of all stages, and of course, the hippies. From almost anywhere in the neighborhood, you can walk to a restaurant, bar, or boutique, and its charm is what drew my family to it, like third graders to recess. My brother Bo attended dental school in Atlanta and was the first Duke to make Atlanta home. The rest of the family followed after our family company, Duke Industrial Fixtures, went down the toilet. Pun intended. Moe's and Joe's is a small, smoky neighborhood bar that peddles Pabst Blue Ribbon without shame and almost always has an open booth. There are a shitload of bars in Atlanta and quite a few in the Highlands, but for me, it's Moe's and Joe's or nothing. On Wednesday nights, Moe's and Joe's had trivia. Torpedo trivia, for me, was about hanging out with my closest friends. But for a couple of the guys, winning the trivia event was everything. We never won. I think sometimes certain teammates might have resented me for not caring. Or for enjoying the team name announcements too much. I didn't care. Our little trivia night hosted teams with fantastic names. Some were stolen from porn films like Indiana Bone and the Temple of Poon. Or some of the younger groups spawned creative originals like It's Only Small When It's This Cold. Or classy crowd favorites like My Couch Pulls Out, But I Don't. Or Lap Dances Are Always Better When the Stripper Is Crying. Getting out of the cab, I was worried I'd missed the night altogether, but was relieved to see three of my good friends still holding court towards the back of the bar in our usual booth. I was also relieved to see a fresh pitcher of PBR waiting for me. Hicks Krugler poured me a beer as I walked up. With him at the table were my tall and lanky neighbor, Rusty Winkle, and our mutual friend, Boomer Spence. Rusty lived across the street from me and was the principal at Grady, the local high school. It was Rusty and I that started coming to trivia night at Mose and Joe's with regularity, then adding my brother Bo, then Hicks, then Boomer after that. Despite my insistence on keeping the group small and exclusive, it had added randomly attending satellite members organically over time. These members could sometimes ruin the chemistry, stressing me out at the beginning of each outing. Scared one of them might walk through the door, the same way you worry about the large, smelly-looking fellow walking down the aisle of an airplane as destined for the empty seat next to you. Wow, where have you been? Rusty asked, sliding over to make room for me. Getting into trouble at an art auction, I said as I slid into the vinyl booth. I forgot about it, and Margot wouldn't let me out of it. No sweat, said Hicks. We were wondering where you and Bo were. You have to pay tonight. Oh, I'm going to pay for tonight, that's for sure. I wasn't kidding. Boomer, 
Tell Parker what you just told us. Rusty looked short of breath like he had been laughing hard, which he did a lot. I was just telling the guys that I had to have the talk with my son about jerking off. Um, what talk is that, I had to ask. You know, lock the door, don't get caught, do it in the shower like everybody else, he said, shoulders shrugged. That's not the funny part. Jesus, Boomer, tell him how you knew it was time to have that talk. Boomer was drunk. Oh, yeah. We were having a dinner as a family with both sets of grandparents, and my wife asked him, Neil, honey, please stop blowing your nose into your T-shirts. It's disgusting. Sometimes I can't pull them apart. Your snot is like glue. At the dinner table? In front of everybody. The laugh was exactly what I needed, and the reason I found my way back to my buddies. I knew Boomer's kid, Neil, and in my mind, I could see him shitting his pants at the dinner table. Oh, man, that is fantastic. How did you guys do without me here tonight? Seventh out of nine. The Cleveland Steamers won again, Hicks said as he topped off my Paps Blue Ribbon. Let's not dwell on opportunities lost. Let's celebrate your capital event instead. Although it looks like you might have started without us at the auction. You had a big day today, Mr. Duke. He raised his glass, and Rusty, Boomer, and I followed with the inaudible clinking of plastic cups. Well, it's not that much money if you want to buy a bunch of apartments, but it's a start, right? They nodded and looked to me for a little speech, which I really didn't feel like giving, so I just said, I couldn't have done it without you, Hicks Krugler. I drank half my beer. It tasted so good. Rose flipped when I gave her the money. It looked to me like you both flipped out. Because I love Dick? You should know we were talking about Rose's brother, Dick. Hicks laughed uncomfortably, not sure whether to believe me, which made me laugh harder. I haven't talked to your brother, Hicks said. And you just missed Quiava. He left after trivia was over. Brock is MIA. Well, Bo Duke is beat up from playing too much golf, the poor kid. I talked to him this afternoon. I'm glad Brock didn't show up. I hate it when he's here. We need to tell Quiava. He's not allowed to invite people. He's way too nice. I can't stand Brock. Inviting him was unfortunate. Telling him we come every Wednesday was catastrophic. Agreed. He's an ass. I can't stand him either, said Boomer. I think we all agree. He really is MIA, though, said Hicks. I wasn't kidding. His wife called me, looking for him. He never came home from Iowa. He's been missing for two days. Good, said Rusty, without looking the least bit concerned. Probably because Brock Martin was a dick. In fact, he was a professional dick. If you've ever had a sneaking suspicion there were people within the insurance industry tasked with finding ways to deny or reduce insurance claims, you were right. Brock Martin was that guy. There were thousands of Brock Martins across the country, but none with his misanthropic zeal. Who was he denying in Iowa, I asked. <laughs> I was waiting for you to get here before I told it, Hicks laughed, pointing to me. Why? I asked. I'd have to tell it twice if I didn't. You won't believe it. It's a very strange story. I have no idea where he is or why he hasn't come back, although I think he may be having a genuine health crisis. He's losing his marbles. End of story. Rusty beamed. He hated Brock the most.
I think so, yes. You can decide for yourselves. Do you want to hear the story or what? Rusty Boomer and I all begged together. Please! Brock was working on a claim filed in Iowa to replace some dairy cows. The farmer who filed the claim literally wrote in the claim that his son was just being a teenager with a cow in a hayfield on a Friday night, and he witnessed the supernatural accident firsthand. It's believable so far, Boomer laughed. Please, Hicks said. He hated to be interrupted. There was an explosion of a military-like orb bomb that blew up without making a sound and blew off the bottom four inches of the cow's legs. The cows were still alive and well because the explosion cauterized the wounds. The cows can limp around on their little cow nubs if they need to, but most of them just lie down on their sides with no interest in being milked. What? Rusty Boomer and I asked in unison. It gets stranger. The farmer wanted to slaughter the cows and filed a claim before doing it. Brock denied the claim because they were still able to produce milk despite their mobility issues. So instead, the insurance company would pay for new little wooden shoes to be made for the cows. Little wooden shoes for cows? Rusty asked. Were they Dutch cows? I couldn't resist. Hicks ignored us. The difference between supplying the little wooden shoes and replacing the cows was $25,000, so Brock's boss sent him out with a bunch of little wooden shoes to see if they could make it work. I told him it was ridiculous, but he said the ends of the cow's legs were perfectly cauterized, so little wooden boots should work for a while. I'm not making this up. I don't deal with cows in real estate, but I don't think they can walk around on nubs even with little wooden shoes. That's just part of the insurance company's plan. That's kind of the guy Brock is. They just want to keep the cows alive long enough to prevent the farmer from refiling the claim. Scumbag. Rusty couldn't believe it either. He's probably at a proctologist's office. I bet that farmer shoved those wooden shoes up his ass. We need to uninvite Brock, I said. Even Leslie doesn't like him. Have you noticed she doesn't talk to us when he's here? There was general agreement at the table. Something would have to be done. Something awkward. Something I would rather pay somebody else to do, like cleaning a porta potty Can you believe we drink with that guy? Boomer said to Hicks as he emptied his beer. I got a split. Rusty slid out of the booth. Well, gentlemen, and I use that term loosely. I've got to go, too. Boomer, I'll walk with you. He looked at me directly. Are we all set for tomorrow, Mr. Duke? You should pack it in, too. For what? Hicks Krugler asked. I'm speaking to his student body tomorrow. You know, just something a tremendously successful big shot like myself does. Speak at the Grady last day of school assembly. I asked him to talk about the tuning forks thing. Rusty explained dismissively. Duke, I think you're confused. Tremendously successful big shots speak at graduation ceremonies, Boomer said, then looked at Rusty. So, in other words, you couldn't find anybody else? Not a soul. Hicks was the next on the list, and he's a lawyer. I just needed a warm body to kill time. The state requires us to keep students until 1230 to get an extra day of funding. If it were up to me, I'd leave at homeroom roll call. You didn't tell me that, I said, feigning disappointment. I'm just filler. I'm just the rice and beans of the burrito. 
You're the meat, Parker. You're the main dish. And what you've got to say is very important, especially to kids who have been waiting forever to get the heck out of that auditorium. Boomer Hicks and Rusty all started laughing, and I couldn't help but join. Whatever. Just wait. Did you get me the tuning forks, I asked Rusty. It sounds like I need all the magic I can get. Yes, and we have microphones set up too, so you don't have to worry about everyone being able to hear them. It's a better setup than you deserve, Rusty smiled. Here's a silly question. Did you bring me a copy of your speech? I'm winging it, brother. You know me. I'll be fine. I do know you. That's why I asked for a copy of the speech, and that's why I'm worried. All kidding aside, Parker, please behave yourself. We won't be in a smoky bar in a hall pass from our wives. No cuss words and nothing racy, okay? These are high school kids, but they're still kids and their parents go apeshit over the smallest things. You slip once and boom, we're all on the nightly news. You're fucked, Rusty. Boomer confirmed what I could tell Principal Rusty Winkle was already worrying about. Despite my sophisticated new attitude of fuck everything, I loved Rusty Winkle and didn't want to cause him any trouble. I appreciated and understood the heads up. I also loved giving Rusty a hard time. Always a principal. My little brother Chewy is going to be there. I'll behave myself. I've got to or he'll tell my dad and the shit will really hit the fan. Don't you worry, Dr. Winkle. You can depend on me, okay? Okay, that doesn't help me at all. I am still very worried. At least stop drinking. I need you in my office by 11 at the latest. You look like a hot mess already. You have no idea. Thanks for the beer, Rusty continued. See you tomorrow. Don't be late. You can count on me, sweetheart, I told him as he and Boomer walked away. Are you really speaking to a gym full of high schoolers? Hicks laughed incredulously. An auditorium full of high schoolers. Rusty's full of shit with this I'm worried routine. He asked me. Hell, he seduced me into doing this. I am not a public speaker. It was probably a good time to talk to Hicks about Margot, but it could wait. Honestly, I'd be happy never saying her name again. Unbelievable. I guess you do have a good riches to rags to riches again story. He picked up his beer for another toast. Here's to a fresh start. Have you settled on a company name? Do you have any office space picked out? No and no. Not yet. I may take a break. You are going to take a break? That should be interesting. You can't sit still for five minutes. What are you going to do? That was a good question. For starters, I might just throw up. I felt sick about my unplanned need to change plans. What the fuck am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do, I said, telling the truth. What's that supposed to mean? You don't know what you're going to do. I thought you were going to keep buying apartments. Of course I am. Sorry. I was thinking of something else, but we can talk about it later. I was embarrassed with myself. Real estate was the only thing I'd ever really done, and I'm good at it. It's the one thing I'd done successfully. I was determined to keep my situation with Margot from sidetracking my life. I lost everything and worked so hard for so long to get it back. Thankfully, we didn't have kids. Okay, good, because I'm about to turn into a pumpkin. Are you ready to leave? Where would I even go? No, I'm going to stay and finish the beer that I'm apparently paying for. Okay, congratulations on your deal. You've earned the success. 
Thanks, Hex, for everything. I mean it. You did a great job. Wait till you get my bill. Good luck tomorrow. Don't get carried away. Please. Oh, man, Parker, you could really get rusty in trouble. Remember, these are kids, not adults. Control yourself. E2, Brute? Hicks slid out of the booth with the awkward coordination of a lifelong attorney and leaned in with a smile on his face. Yes, and thanks for the beer. Hicks was right. I did earn this success. It brought a smile to my face, thinking I had, by my own hard work, made more money at the age of 36 than most people would make in their lifetimes. I honestly never had the confidence in myself to think that I could do it. Unlike most people, I grew up thinking I'd never have to hold a real job. I just assumed I'd end up like most of my friend's older brothers and take a fancy-titled bullshit job in the family business, faking like I was working. Families like mine hired real people to come in and do the hard work. It embarrassed me thinking back to those days. My family was ridiculously wealthy, and I was ridiculously lazy. I was so lazy, I even had a plan to weasel out of fake working. It was actually genius. I started telling people in college I was going to be a writer. I fell into the idea. I had taken a creative writing class in college because I'd heard it was the easiest English elective and also because it didn't start until 2 o'clock, which meant I could sleep in until 1.45. The grad student that helped our professor run the class was a less-than-average guy like myself, except all the classmates thought he was a god. I couldn't understand it. He was so full of shit and nobody ever called him out for it. He never shared anything he'd ever written with us. Nothing. Not a single goddamn thing. He'd criticize what we did. But I never read a single thing he wrote. It absolutely floored me that someone could get so much credit for doing nothing at all. That was a eureka moment for me. Becoming a writer seemed like a very impressive and artsy way to fake work. My plan was to tell everyone I was a writer working on a novel. I'd keep giving optimistic updates if people asked, and if they volunteered to read it, I'd say, I'd love that, and then never send them anything. If they continued to press me, I'd reiterate that, yes, I'd let them read it, but not until I was happy with it. Do you see the genius in that? Independently wealthy writers can get credit for working without ever having to prove it, or more importantly, without ever having to work. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, when my trust fund imploded, my fake writing career imploded with it. Using writing as a distraction and getting my big deal closed was probably as much as I'd get out of my short-lived writing career at this point. Something Rose would agree with as well. I did meet Sarah in my creative writing class, though. She was a beautiful girl who would eventually become my girlfriend. She was fantastic because she found writers particularly sexy, and I particularly wasn't. In fact, if I wrote something clever for an assignment, she'd get so amorous she'd pursue me for sex, which is something I can assure you had never happened before. Going through my current situation with Margot and thinking of Sarah hurt more than it usually did, as she was the one. Everyone has that former flame way in the background, helping them doubt current and future decisions, co-authoring the what-if thoughts. Sarah was mine. <laughs>